Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who also only has one lawn chair in the middle of his apartment. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass. And, uh, yeah, um, do you think the apartment from uh, Le Samurai... Uh, is it all influenced by this movie? I wouldn't. That's I, all I thought of when possible. I saw the, well, what, the apartment. What, what's weird is okay. So I want you to just work with me on this. This apartment is very small, and yet, at the same time, somehow has no physical space. Like it doesn't. I can't <laughs> comprehend yeah. because what he does is what our director does is he like we get through the window a lot, right? Or from the angle of the window, right. which doesn't show the bed. And then every so often, he shows an internal shot, shot from the other side. Where the chair's missing because the chair's not part of the shot, right? And or sometimes the chair's turned around facing the other direction, and you can see the bed. Um, I do understand the the geog- when I sit and think about it, I understand the geography of the room. But in yeah. the act of watching it, without if you don't if you're not if you don't concentrate on the geography of the room, you're like, what is this room? This room is four foot by four foot, and also impossible like, <laughs> also makes no sense like yeah it's like you know it's essentially that he's always living in a jail cell no matter what yeah yeah well. yeah, right. yeah i mean yeah. he go well and, and you know everybody does right like there's everybody's going from tiny room to tiny room they're outside occasionally right. but it's like the recess at at jail right right and when he when he's outside someone's attempting to stab him yeah somebody's so. throwing knives at his head Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. Yes, bonus content. Just one dollar a month gets you access to uh, our bonus episode. It's a non-criterion film. Uh, Supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch from a list usually that I put together. The only form of democracy you can participate in which will have any impact on the results. Yeah. It's through us. If you really, if you want to vote for something that you actually feel uh, usually not very icky about, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, our, I mean, sometimes we make bad lists, and you will feel a little icky yeah. because you are voting for us. Much like most uh, poli- have, politics, you might be voting for the yeah. worst, the lesser, the evil. lesser evil. Yeah. Sometimes, but Adam tries to avoid lists like that. I do. I do often. Uh, but yeah, that one dollar also gets you access to the seventy bonus episodes that already exist. Uh, you could yeah, you could listen while, to too. them one a day for a year and not run out. I don't recommend it, now, but you there, could do it. There's more than there's more than seventy days in a year. Actually, I, I know that's what I'm but, saying. You would not run out. I said we would not run out. You wouldn't run out of days. I meant you wouldn't run out of podcasts <laughs> before the year is up. There's only there's only seventy bonus episodes. Pat. Oh, I meant sorry. I meant I meant I was thinking week. <laughs> I always do that. Yeah. No, no, you would run out. You uh, okay? Maybe your year is three hundred fifty days long. Mine is not. Mine, my okay. year is not three hundred sixty five days long. My year is is fifty two. Thank you very 52 much. Fifty two years. Fifty two days long. Uh, I live in a very very different timeline than you do. Eight hours work, eight hours rest, 
364 days and eight hours sleep. Sounds that's, correct. Yes. That's my year. That $1, like I said, gets you access to those bonus episodes, a uh, whole back catalog of them, gets you the vote. Uh, but, you know, some folks, they're like, hey, $1 is good, but can I give you more money? And, and we, we say, say yes. At the $5 mark for folks who can afford it, want to help keep us going a little bit more, uh, they get thanked on air. So thank you so much to our current $5 supporters, Andrew Jarrett, Eric Coronado, Stephen Goldmeyer, and Chris Otto. Yes, thank you. Above that, we do something kind of special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized thank you note every month. Get that sent off to our $10 and above supporters, who we also like to thank on air. Thank you so much to Nina Bajnak, Jason Westhaver, Patrick Gacko, Adam Speakerman, and Tracy McGrath, our $10 and above supporters right now. Yes, thank you. If you want to see those postcards without committing to that $10 mark, head over to redbubble.com. Search for Lost in Criterion there. You'll see our shop pop up. It's got uh, all the past postcards. Well, most of the past postcards. A few have been challenged over the years, but that's okay. Because those guys uh, suck. But, yeah, you can uh, buy past postcards there as postcards, as greeting cards, as stickers, uh, some as buttons. Hats. Um, Button lapel pins. No. T-shirts. I don't think there's any hats yet. I wonder, do they offer hats? I bet they offer hats, right? Uh, I mean, they probably offer some sort of hat. I bet it's a very bad hat. Yeah, but but... Get, it, get it printed on a bad bucket hat. There you go. There you go. Thank you so much to everyone who has uh, purchased anything off that red yes, bubble. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. And thank you for listening. Yes, thank you for listening. We appreciate it very, very much. Pat, this week we were talking about our third and currently final uh, Masahiro Shinoda film. Shinoda is someone who uh, I remember liking, but we've seen so few of his films over the years. So uh, Double Suicide we watched nine years ago. Yes. Uh, it was spine number 104. I, I, don't, uh, I do not remember it very well. Yeah. I remember it was very stylistic. It's a... It's an ad- a film adaptation of a Bunraku puppet play. Um, okay. Yeah. And, yeah, I, when I think about Double Suicide, I have, like, mood associated, uh, vibe associated with it. Exclusively more than any vibes. Individual memory. Yeah, any individual memory of the film. Uh, and then we also watched one of his films as part of the uh, Rebel Samurai box set. Uh, at Spine 312, we watched Samurai Spy, which, if I remember correctly, was the one where they're being chased by the the weird white ninja guy who's got the, like, rope. Uh, that <laughs> uh, might be it, but, man. Knife you on did, a rope yeah, attack. Like, I, that, but, I remember. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, th- those These were, were confused. Those were kind of all ran together. Yeah, the Rebel Samurai films sort of run together. I don't think it was the one that ended with, like, the the supernatural ninja guy team showing up or whatever. Um, but I could be wrong on that too, but yeah. So it's been a while since we watched a Shinoda film. Um, I loved everything in the rebel samurai box set. So I, I definitely love samurai spy, even if I can't. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, it was a, it was a fun watch. I, I, I have trouble remembering it at this point, but yeah. Um, so yeah, pale flower is our, Third one, and it's our only uh, non-samurai film. It's a Yakuza film instead, um, <laughs> which are which right are him. nearly the same genre. But yeah, yeah, 
pretty close. Uh, though this is this is a 1960s Yakuza film, right? Which uh, which which will bring up what what my father had to say about it. But yes, yeah, it is a very much a 1960s <laughs> film, a 1960s uh, samurai or uh, Yakuza yeah, film. We are right. We are dealing with a time where. At least the ones we end up watching in the Criterion Collection are deconstructing the Yakuza film in some way. Uh, be it absurdism of Suzuki or, uh, well, I mean, this just is, I mean, this is a different type of absurd, yeah, absurdism, actually, in Pale Flower. Suzuki and this are like, are like cousins, right? They, they have, right. They're, they're dealing with it in different ways, but they... Like they do have some like really noticeable stylistic elements that they share, right? Like my my father when we were watching this, he only watched about half, but he did watch about half of it. Mm. Was like, man, like there's like no transitions between these scenes. Right. It's really disorienting. I was like, yeah, like '60s yakuza films, at least the ones we've watched, are kind of like meant to feel like jazz, but on film. Like yes, they're they're supposed to be kind of chaotic and kind of erratic, and like you're not. Supp- Supposed to always be able to just like watch it in the way you would normally watch a, a film, right? You're not supposed to be. You you can't really like the story doesn't allow you time to like marinate on things. It's sort of just trying to hit you with like new beats and new notes like all the time and, until it just sort of comes to an end, right? Because um, like this did remind me a lot of like the Suzuki films that we've watched, and it, it, it's not right. That is. That is weird in the way that Suzuki films can be weird. Uh, yeah, but we're, we're in like fewer insane affectations on the part of like various characters. But like, <laughs> yes, yes. Comparing this to jazz gets us into the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, well, it does. And I think we can well, I mean, get into a, the soundtrack, yeah, it, it, the it, score it, to this. Movie absolutely, first thing they too. they go hand in hand on yeah. purpose, right? Like very much so in this one. Yeah. So, um, the music here is done by uh, Toru Takamitsu. And Takamitsu, we've heard soundtracks from before. Uh, he did Double Suicide, obviously, which is chronologically after this in in our director's career. Um, but uh, the same, right around the same time this came out, he did the soundtrack for Quaidon. He mm-hmm. did the soundtrack for Women in the, uh, Woman in the Dunes. Um, he'd done the soundtrack to Harakiri a few years before. Um, I mean, and he's the face of a he's a face of another. Oh yeah, yeah. He did the face of another. He did Dudeskadan. He did Ron. Also in the uh, Rebel Samurai box set, he did he did for Samurai uh, 1967 Samurai Rebellion. Um, uh, directed by Kobayashi. Um, so yeah, he worked with everybody. Right. Uh, I mean, he's very he's very good at his job, right? Like he he is like this soundtrack is very the soundtrack is perfectly tuned to the movie in the sense that yeah. it is also erratic and and kind of like very very yeah, not, jazzy. Not all of those films I've mentioned soundtracks are as jazzy or as avant garde no, no. as I, this one is. But like Dudeskadin gets there, I think the face. I think Women in the Dunes and Face of Another get there as well. Um, I'm trying to remember that. I can't. I can't recall in my head the soundtrack of 
Um, of uh, I just remember, the the, yeah, the Tesha Gohari films were were so themselves weird and avant garde that I just think that uh, music in this yeah, style would have worked. On, my memory even if I is can't. that Doreskadon, I believe, and this is just memory at this point, I believe he played more on the idea of like more classical, not classical, yeah. F- music but like class like sort of traditional or classical japanese song this is my memory yeah. like because playing with the idea of like these people in this place are like kind of trapped in their own world and stuff it wasn't as jazzy right. i don't think yeah but well one reason i think the really makes sense as something he did is that takamitsu's approach to music and we get into this with some of the bonus features uh off the off the disc this week um, his approach was really holistic. He would ask the directors for every sound that they recorded for the movie, and he would he would use that as a basis for for what he started doing. And he wasn't just scoring the film; he was more doing the entire film's sound design from right, the ground right, up. Yeah. When when he was actually you know given the freedom to do what he wanted to do. And I can't guarantee that he always got that freedom, but uh, here he really did. I'm thinking about Dudeskadin and the title itself being Onomatopoeia. Um, that just feels like like well, something well, we talked, I, Takamitsu I, would work yeah, into. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my memory, and this is like really memory only, yeah. um, is that we talked about how at the time the music, you know, the movie has a that movie not not to spend too much time on that one, but like that movie has a sort of because it's about that onomatopoeia and all that stuff, and it's a you know plays a central role in it. My memory is that there's a certain sort of that there's a rhythmness, there's a, a a lyricalness to even like yeah the sort of general sound design of the movie. Um, yeah, and that's you know obviously going to be uh, important. That's something he's going to play a big part in sort of conceiving of and making happen right um so you know I, I you know i i like his soundtracks i think they're 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 good yeah he you know here there's a lot of like i i i find that like um he does a lot of interesting stuff with um kind of ramping up the uh the soundtrack in a way in almost mm-hmm. a sort of playful way where like you as the audience start to expect something to happen but it's actually not yeah. the scene. It's not the scene where the thing's gonna happen, and so he just sort of right. builds tension in you, and then it's like, ah, no, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. dramatic from a like from a social standpoint, but like, we're like, no one's because you, he, I, I, especially I'm thinking about like the scenes with um our main character and Yo, where like yeah. we get a lot of like these looks right, and they're they're hit with like. Ext- pretty intense jazz beats and or, uh, hit, hit note hits and stuff. And it's like, well, yes, this is a very important thing we're building here, but like neither, neither of them is actually going to shoot each other now. You know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. Like this yeah. is, this is him to a certain extent kind of playing with you because the, the thing you think is going to happen, like it's not going to pop off here now. Like it's just not right. But you think it might because he's fucked with you so bad. That you're like, well, this could go out. Could they go down at any moment? And it's actually just never, go, barely, borderline, never going to go right. down. Right. It goes down in proxy. Right. Uh, 
off screen even in proxy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. The way uh the way the sound design here was built is really interesting. Um first off, uh he uses a lot of sort of analogous sounds, metaphorical sounds, like the the clicking we get whenever the cards are being shuffled. Right. Obviously, you know, these cards they're uh they're small but they're they're solid. Um, they're a little thick. They sound like sticks clicking together as you shuffle them sometimes. Um, wood hitting each other. But what, what we hear is sort of that, but it's actually a recording of uh, tap dancers. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, and like the... There is instrumentation here. They hired a full orchestra. And... Right. Uh, and had the the foremost avant-garde compo- uh, or uh, conductor uh, uh, in Japan, experimental conductor in Japan, um, uh, directing that orchestra. Uh, but the orchestra, there's no melodies ever, like anywhere. Right. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, they took the recordings of the orchestra uh, to NKH's electric electronic music studio okay processed it there and that's a studio that uh stockhausen had worked in stockhausen is one of the founders of music concrete the first electronic noise sorts of things right uh that that start happening um so he'd worked there and yeah the the conductor was a music concrete guy um so they're doing, they're doing music concrete with a full orchestra, which is already pretty weird, <laughs> right? Because uh, part of music concrete is often just like naturally occurring sounds too, uh, the sounds of a city, the sounds of industry, but also the sounds of nature and and you know sorts of picking up on that. So you know, uh, Shinoda says that like they had the full orchestra, they had like five people with uh stand-up double basses but none of them were using their bow they were just like slapping the strings and you know, right. making had the whole orchestra being percussion is how he described it um so yeah it's just it's it's really fascinating it's a whole bunch of people experimental sorts of people coming together uh Relatively early, not hugely early. 65 is, is well into musical concrete had started in like, you know, a, a decade or more before. Um, but uh, uh, Shinoda describes it as possibly the most avant-garde music in the world at the time. And he's being a little hyperbolic, yeah. but he's not being that hyperbolic. I mean, it is, it is <laughs> like, very, like... At least... Oh, go ahead. At least in a movie that's ostensibly meant to be mainstream this is this is uh pretty uh, yeah certainly, pretty certainly yeah i mean like i would say that because of the way it blends with the with this with the movie it's it i i it feels like one of those things where if the movie were not what it is and we're not set up sort of it didn't have a this, you, you could see a world where Somebody would be like, this soundtrack is off-putting and I don't want to listen. Like, it's this is no, you know what I mean? Like, right, and right. It would just never, but, but as it stands, it sort of pulls it off. You know what I mean? Like, it's also you kind of, I don't, it's hard to say at this point because I've gotten so used to, like, 
essentially what this kind of 1960s Japanese film was like. It's like, yeah, would a person at the time have been like, what the fuck is going on here? Or would they be like, yeah, this is fine. This is cool. Well, it's a really, a really interesting thing about this movie is that this is this is maybe the fir- the most avant garde uh, Takamitsu soundtrack we've had, uh, and that if if it were just that, that would be an interesting movie for us to watch as part of the Criterion right. Collection. But it's also it's also Shinoda doing a weird <laughs> deconstruction of uh, of the Yakuza film. And if it were just that, it would be interesting enough right, you to be in the criteria together, collection. Yeah. yeah, and smashed together, they're just all the more. Uh, in fact, one of the bonus features uh, uh, is uh, Pale Flower's selected scene commentary. And the selected scene commentary is actually from a guy named uh, Peter Grilly, who is the president of the Japan Society of Boston, grew up in Japan, and... Uh, has produced a documentary about Takamitsu's film scores. Interesting. And I've heard it. I've heard all of the commentary. Before, yeah. yeah. All of the commentary is about Takamitsu and the music of the film. Not, nice. not about, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, certainly with a little bit of, of, right. But like, you know, Takamitsu is like, the movie is itself a, being a, pretty out a there. Prolific but, sort of, yeah. You know, even, even if we get into like, this may be most avant-garde, but like, just generally avant-garde film composer. And so, you know, he's a, he is an interesting subject in and of himself. And because he is a film composer, you can only really talk about him through the lens of film, right? You can't, it's not really possible to talk about him independently of film. Right. Um, And then you combine that with the fact that you've got this, this movie by Shinoda that is like, yeah, I mean, it's not. I wouldn't say it's like out of his wheelhouse or anything like that. Like he's, all of his movies are that we that I remember, are have things about them that make them sort of unique and special, and and not just like the rote version of the thing that they are. Um, this one is, I think, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember Double Suicide very well. I went to go look it up, and I just, right. I still can't. Like it's just all these movies were just so long ago. You're like, yeah, you know, yeah. but. This one feels this one, and maybe it's because we hadn't watched the the Suzuki films prior to watching something like I think Double Suicide comes before them, uh, in the timeline, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Uh. Well, the Suzuki might be that. I mean, I mean, in terms of us, of us, us. Yeah. Like for us, and like, it's hard to like, you know, this gives us a chance to sort of reframe. Somebody like Shinoda from the context of Suzuki, you know, having seen Suzuki and seen more of 60s work that wasn't made by Kurosawa, basically. You know what I mean? Right, um, right, right. Which is, which is helpful, right? Because we've been kind of like those early films we didn't have a lot of uh, context for. Um, and, yeah, I, I right. think like, you know. Yeah, Tokyo Drifter and, uh, and Branded to Kill were super early and, and super out there. Uh, and they... They threw us headfirst into Suzuki and then took him away. Right, uh, and, and, they, and they had uh, a big impact, like, for me personally. And so, like, I start right. framing oh, yeah, other absolutely. directors from a kind of, like, because those are just yeah. so fucking wild that you're like, okay, yeah. well, like, well, I'm going to end up looking at something like this from that uh, from that right. lens, and, which is, I don't think, a yeah. bad and lens double, for that. To do. Right. Double Suicide was almost the halfway point between 
our first set of Suzuki films and our second set of Suzuki films, right. uh, which were uh, Fighting Elegy is is two sixty nine, uh, and Gates of Flesh I think is right around there too. Yeah, two ninety eight. Um, Story of a Prostitute should be around there too, uh, with Gates of Flesh at two ninety nine, and Youth of the Beast is yeah two sixty eight. So there it was two pairs of Fighting Elegy and Youth of the Beast were together in the Gates of Flesh and Story of a Prostitute together a few months later. So, um, yeah. Uh, and we still got take aim at the police van sometime in the future. Right. Oh, wait, no, it's a, it's an eclipse. It's not. Oh, a really? Criterion. Oh. Anyway. Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, so yeah, yeah. You know, we think Suzuki really is our, our way out there. Guy, right. I mean, right? he just, I so, mean, right from the first thing that we ever saw of his, it was just like, this is batshit insane. Like, yeah. This stuff is nuts. Like, whereas Sonoda, we're seeing a, a much more restrained, much more. It is still very deconstructed. Like, it's it's very much a sort of look at Yakuza films as a whole. It's funny because the thing that we kind of run into here with at least with um, our podcast is that we never watch a standard. We basically never watch the the ro- rote standard Yakuza film. Not really. right, 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 right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we don't. We've I'm, only I'm, ever I'm, seen deconstructions. Like, yeah, I'm I'm familiar with them. Uh, usually, they're more modern counterparts that are like post a lot of these reconstructions, but still contain a lot of those elements in there. But like, yeah, we don't ever watch like. Well, this is this is a a director's like unique take on a yakuza film rather than a. Yeah, just a bog standard <laughs> yakuza film. Almost always, yeah. yeah. We don't we don't watch those. Uh, and I think that's kind of that. That alone is kind of a funny thing, right? That like we just have no real. Uh, we don't know the thing. We in many ways we're not as familiar with the thing that's being deconstructed as we should be, right? Right. Um, we can kind of figure it out because box standard Yakuza films are not that different from box standard American gangster films, really. Like they're all sort of fit in the same genre. There, there are different things about them, but. Yeah, right. I, 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 yeah. It's it just it's a fascinating thing to think about that, like. But I, I, I like this the way that he, I, I still kind of like can't like the thing that I really that really got me about this movie was that sort of like, I don't know the way we hit our beats doesn't feel like a, it, beyond just like the story being sort of a, a sort of different take on, that although I mean. This may be relatively early, but like a lot of people have done these sort of like this kind of view of like a criminal or of a of a yakuza. But yeah, um, the way he hits those beats, um, being sort of having that sort of erratic feeling to it, where you're like, it doesn't feel like the rhythm is the sort of standard rhythm of of any movie. It, it sort of the movie seems to kind of like judder a little bit, like as it, which yeah. I think you know is on purpose. It's not a mistake. Uh, it just makes for a very different watching experience because you don't really know at any point, like in a normal film, you can kind of predict like the pace at which things are going to happen. You can be like, okay, well this is going to happen next and it's going to happen around this time. Whereas this movie, you really don't have, it never lets you sort of like come to grips with like when things are going to unfold and stuff like, I mean, especially the ending they where they're sort of like, not only do we not get resolution, we get, even like less than normal (laughs) less than normal for no resolution right because we you he never even 
we watch him search for like days, right? And it never accomplishes anything at all. Right. And then the movie just sort of basically it basically just ends at that point, right? Like it's just well, it's okay, well, yeah, we get that little scene at the end where all oh, Seiko's Seiko's dead. Uh but like which we can kind of that's that element is somewhat predictable, right? Um Right. But the fact that we, we the way we find it out is not predictable, I would say. The pacing of this film I mean it is avant garde across the board. Right. Right. More than a Yakuza film, this is an an early gambling film. Right. right. Yeah. We yeah. And that you know, the Really, the heyday of gambling films, as far as I'm concerned, is like the 90s into the 2000s, and they're poker films, usually, right? Well, I mean, that's the um, heyday, probably. Right. I, would, I I think we could agree that that's the heyday of when they were being made. Uh, right, right. The heyday <laughs> Whether or not the, quality, the best ones yeah. coming out were. Yeah. I, I find <laughs> okay, almost fine. all poker films garbage. Like, I've just I've seen so yeah. few that were good at all to me, but. I get it. And it depends on. Depends on how it plays, too. Well, I mean, because um, like, because you know, this one at least, you know, I I I really like this one, but this one is, it, it's you know, using they all use gambling as a metaphor, but they often I feel like oftentimes it's very heavy, like clumsily done. Whereas this feels fairly right, like it's barely it's barely necessary that the gambling exists, other than just to basically bring our characters together more than anything else and like define their relationship. But yeah. Yes, but we spend so much time with the gambling and the ritual of the gambling and the gambling as character development. Right. Um, yeah, that's actually one thing that uh, Shinoda brings up in uh, in uh, his bonus feature, uh, the bonus feature that's an interview with him, is that the co-writer of the film, uh, who is a guy named Masaru Baba, Baba wrote the second half of the movie, and... Shinoda wrote the first half off uh, after they hashed out what the plot would be together. Um, and it's based off a book, so, you know, they they had a little bit of that going on, too. Um, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, it's based off a story by uh, uh, Ishihara. Uh, Shin- uh, Shintaro Ishihara. <laughs> Someone we've encountered before. Uh, he is the guy who wrote uh, Crazed Fruit, the, the hard-right politician. Uh, who who wrote that very right, bad right. the youth the youth the youth are going to ruin everything movie, um, and you know we we talked a lot with Cray Fruit about how uh, his politics are bad right yeah. <laughs> and he should feel bad, um, but uh, but here here the politics are playing differently and also filtered through filtered through Shinoda. I'm not sure they even exist. Well, um, I think you could, you sort of get a weird sort of like balancing thing where you're you're filtering those politics through Shinoda. You end up with them sort of <laughs> canceling each other out a little bit to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean there is a there is a there is a politic to this, but the politic is that like right. is discussing discussing the idea that you know modern society traps us and and sort of like right like right, everybody right, as right. we talked about well, at the very beginning everybody's in a cage. Um, yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk a little more about the politic in a in a minute because Shinoda gets into this movie as metaphor for international relations that I do want to dig I do want to bite into when okay, I want to finish let's, let's do that <laughs> some other stuff first. Um, so Baba uh, Baba wrote the second half of the movie and uh, when he got the script from Shinoda he's like, "Why are why are your gambling scenes three pages long? All I wrote was now they gamble." 
one sentence. That's all you need. They're just gambling. And she knows, like, no, no, the gambling is the entire entirety of the dra- drama, which is why I think of this more as a gambling film. I, I agree with you. I, I was just trying to, yeah, I, 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 uh, yes. yeah. No, I get you. Yeah. Um, and in, fa- in fact, after the first showing of the movie, uh, uh, Baba showed, uh, stood up in the theater with the executives and said, this is not the movie I wrote. Which, and, which you uh, should feel bad because you you wish you wrote this movie. This yeah, very, very good. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Shochiko, the production company, um, or the distribution company, I guess it was. Arguably, Shinoto had had such a wide leash that this is essentially an indie film. Um, but right. uh, Shochiku uh, is a distribution company, uh, and uh, and during the first showing, um, Shinoto says they use the excuse of uh, of screenwriter and director being at odds after the first showing as a reason to shelf this for a little bit. And he doesn't know why they should change their mind and eventually released it. I mean, that but, that uh, is one does wonder, right? My, I, I think you would probably, and I'm sure if you know, like was like, he, you know, produced a bunch of films. I'm sure he just doesn't, hasn't given it like a billion hours of thought. Um, I suspect you would discover. I, I wonder how it fits in the timeline of other, other avant-garde film at the time, where because you kind of yeah. get a wave, right? Like all you need is like one or two to come out and do pretty well, for other production companies to say, "Hey, you know, we have something like that sitting on a shelf somewhere." You, you know what I mean? Like I would, yeah. I, I bet. And this is me just hypothesizing, but I, I bet if you sort of like laid out the timeline yeah. you would discover well something came out that did well enough that they said to themselves well fuck it like right well according according to wikipedia the delay was only seven months okay um but like again seven months though is long enough that it it feels like well this could have also just stayed in the hole forever right like it, it could have just lived right. there and never come out um just as easily Right. So yeah, I wonder I wonder what else was going on. Yeah, um, I mean I, I just I have a feeling, yeah, that the yeah. timeline would tell you, but like it would always just be hypothesis because they're never gonna that you know, you're never gonna find out right. the real answer, right? It's always gonna be like, Well, based on what other things were coming out at the time, like, oh well we have a kind of jazzy right. avant garde thing sitting around by a guy who has some name right. rec- has pretty good right name recognition. Maybe we should just put it out and, like, what's the worst that could happen? Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, getting into this movie as allegory for international politics. And this is a thing Shinoda says, and he lays it out pretty pretty clearly. So I do want to cover it because okay. it's not it's, – you know, it's one, it's one of those things where it's sort of like the rules of the game. Where if you know what the director is meaning to say, yeah, it all makes sense, but intuiting it from watching the movie, right, isn't isn't necessarily it. Actually, there is one other thing I want to say be, on it on it being a gambling film. Before we get okay. into this, sure. Um, as far as it being a gambling film, it kind of reminded me of Casino Royale. Okay. The the James Bond okay. movie. I would in, agree with in that. that <laughs> I'm not going to disagree in that, with that. The gambling, um. Not the new one, because in the in the new Casino Royale, they replace it with poker, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
but Baccarat, and, and this is true for, for you know, traditionally Bond has played Baccarat. Baccarat is such a non-intuitive game. Right, right. And <laughs> the game they're playing here is also impossible to intuit <laughs> by, by watching it. So it just reminded me of, of that aspect that you don't need to understand how the game plays because you can see in everyone's reactions who's won big, who's lost, right, who's right. made good decisions, who's made bad decisions. Uh, and you can intuit how the game is going without knowing how the game is played. Well, and, but the game itself is so obtuse that you'd never figure out how to play right, it and, by and, just watching and it. I, and I, I do believe that Shinoda chose this to do this this way on purpose. Like, yeah. I don't know for sure, but, like, this game is obscure enough that I... The tiles are familiar, but, like, I've never seen it. Like, at all. Ever. Yeah. I've ne- and now I, I don't hang around in the underworld, so, like, maybe to a very select percentage of its audience that's, like, completely discernible, right? The same as Baccarat would be. Um, right. But I think it is meant to be broadly to the audience of Japan to be a... It's... It is a game that you have to do what you just described with. And I, that's why I said gambling, yes, but also not yeah. gambling in the sense that, like, the gambling serves as a, as a gateway and a funnel and, a, and, a, and a, an allegory for the drama that's happening. But, like, right. it is purposely obscured so that you can't focus on, like, the, res- like the actual right. gambling. You know what I mean? He's, made a, right. he's picked a game that is hard enough to d- interpret and, and analyze as an audience member, that eventually you have to stop paying attention to it. And all you're paying attention yeah. to is reactions. You're no longer... Right. And, and that's, right. I, I think, a functional problem with a lot of the poker movies in the, that you talked about, like what, what we call, what I, what I think of as yeah. gambling movies, right? Is that, like, those games are not obscure. They're not hard to understand the rules. So you as an audience member end up following the game. Yeah. Which they seem to yeah. want you to do, which makes it mostly about start to feel mostly about the game rather than 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 a um, than about the story. Right. Yeah. It's the same problem that a lot of sports movies fall into. Right. Because right. either the sport is the thing or it has to be something you don't have to pay that close attention. You have to choose. Right. Like if it's one of those sports movies where it's like it's about the underdog coming from behind and, and overcoming the, the odds or whatever. Well, if you're making it about that final game, then the game needs to be interpretable by the audience, right? But right, if it's about right. the drama, we have to understand what those players, stakes are. Yeah. It could be fucking any game, right? And and, right. and choosing a game that everybody understands could actually hurt you rather than help you because you're going to find yourself with people who are like, well, wait a minute, what about this or what about that? And it's like, no, 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 yeah. I don't want you to pay attention to the game. Right. Or you do something like Dodgeball where it's so absurdly easy to understand what the right what the that you thing can ignore it. That's yeah 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 that's right. that's truly yeah. another option is to yes you're right like be like well this is yeah. this is a baby game i can ignore this right this is actually this is actually interesting to me because it i might be more familiar with hanafuda as a game than you are uh uh because i played it um or ver- versions of it there's a lot of subtle variations that you can play um because it shows up in video games uh somewhat often um, the Yakuza series has a Hanafuda. I've never played uh, the Yakuza games, and that's sort game. of that. That's sort of like I kind of assumed yeah. it is a sort of a. My my guess is though that like my my feeling on it is that it is meant to be sort of thematically representative of like you're dealing with the underworld now. Yeah, like it's like it's for example like it sounds stupid, but it's like dice in like American 
parlance, right? In right. the sense that, like, Absolutely. you're dealing with yeah. a game that is not played in reputable circles, period. Right. Yeah. And that's, that is why it shows up in right. the Yakuza and in the Like a Dragon uh, series. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, interestingly enough, and, and possibly very weirdly, considering now that I know that Hanafuda is, is associated with some sort of underworld thing. Um, in one of the Nintendo released uh, Switch games that's just a uh, board game collection, uh, Koi Koi, uh, which is a Hanafuda game, uh, is one of the playable games. Oh, interesting. And in fact, and in fact you can get, uh, you can unlock in the game a uh, Nintendo-themed Hanafuda deck. Well, my, gu- uh, my guess would be that, that it's really not nice. directly, because like, like, what it reminds, it kind of, like, like I said, I've seen the tiles before, and my guess is that, like, yeah. there's a, probably a fine line between the gambling versions and the non-gambling versions of this game, much like a lot of yeah, other things. Yeah, but also in the in one of the bonus features, I can't remember if it was Shinoda or someone else, uh, they acknowledge, fully acknowledge, that the average audience at the time and even today... Should not know the, the rules of this game they're playing. Would not know the rules to this game, and, and that is one reason why they chose this right. game. Yeah, it, it makes so. sense. Like, Well, and especially when you get into the fact that there's a million variations, right? Like of like a lot of old old games, like very old games. There's right. like a million variations. My guess is, even if the audience is familiar with the 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 idea of the game, uh, because I like I said, I've seen the tiles, which means I've seen the game at some point in my life. Um, yeah. My guess is the way they're playing it is not the way that those t- that that game is quote unquote meant to be played. You you know what I mean? Like the 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 sort of throwing out and then because they even changed the the format of the game midway through like, Oh, as agreed, we're changing to a different format. Uh, you know, it's like, it's sort of a version of like switching the, you know, the style of poker, but instead you're switching the style of poker from one incomprehensible game to another. It may be possibly even more. Uh, I mean, oddly enough, the second game they play with her with, uh, Seiko Mm -hmm. is more comprehensible than the first. Like significant, yeah. right? It's match sets. You're, you're. It's not exactly easy to understand how the three cards work together with yeah. what she's doing, but you get the understanding that, like, oh, somebody's trying to match. She's trying to, to fool them and pick something that they're not going to choose. Which, which seems right. uh, there must be other rules that we don't understand because, like, otherwise it would be impossible for her to win because there's like twelve people there, like the chances of nobody picking hers is zero, right? So it's, there's some sort of stakes thing going on that, like, you know, she gets a percentage or something, right? But, um, yeah, I don't, it, it is very, very... Uh, it's, it's, it's smart because it, it, it fixes what I hate about your poker game, your poker movies, you know? Right. Like, And I, yeah. I, I want to be clear here, I hate those fucking movies, by and large. Well, I... It, uh... Since since you hate them, I want to be even more uh, dismissive of poker, uh, and say it is essentially go fish. Yeah, uh, yeah especially modern yeah. poker. <laughs> so you're just you're just ma- uh, sequence matching, um, and putting way too much money on it. I don't know. I haven't uh, I haven't seen the cow- card counter, but I've heard a lot of good, very good things about it. Which well, is uh, you get into a different element uh, when you get into those. Paul Schrader's most yeah. You get into a different thing when you're poker your your car your game game is well you when you start talking about people who are cheating 
it gets yeah, a little yeah, bit different yeah, yeah. because now it's about the drama of like getting away with cheating, right? It's not really about the drama yeah. of the card game, which is not very interesting, right? My problem is with the ones that focus too heavily on the game. And it's like, well, this game is kind of boring. I'm sorry to tell you. you a huge swath of America was very, very into it for a while, but this game kind of sucks and isn't yeah. nearly as dramatic as a lot of people seem to think it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean uh, we went to, we went to college in the era of people watching the World Poker Tournaments on TV in the dorm <laughs> right, room, right. and it was a fucking nightmare, okay? It was. I hated was. that era. No, that, was, was that was always very boring. Um, yeah. But, yeah, obviously, any good gambling movie has something else going on, you know, some some criminal element right. any, happening any or some, some threat to life and liberty, you know, that that increases the drama. Right. Right. Uh, which is why just watching poker has always been boring for me. Right, exactly. <laughs> because, and there are certain movies that just because like the game itself is not dramatic enough. Here, the game itself is foreign enough to me that it is it is dramatic enough, and that is helped by uh, Takemutsu's soundtrack and uh, and and sound design and like the the ritual of it and the repeating of the the dealer doing that little chant whatever he's saying place your bets place your bets i think is what yeah, he's saying yeah i mean he's saying he's, he's just saying over and over again a bunch again. of different chants that they're just all yeah. just place your bets but like yeah, yeah. they're interesting because yeah. it ha- it sort of picks up the sort of vibe of almost like an auction house or something it's not but like that that same sort of like right. the same sort of building tension with everybody not meant to build tension with us, the audience, but also like to feel like we're building tension with the table as well, right? So, so this movie as metaphor for international relations. Yes, do um, tell Meraki, our main character, um, as Japan. Um, okay, he he has just returned from prison and discovered that his uh, his gang. And the rival gang that he went to prison for killing okay, a member I of. Okay, I see exactly where this are now this, friends. This, I, okay, I understand what the politics here. Uh, okay. Yeah, and there is an upstart uh, gang that is pushing against them, and that is why the rival gangs have come together. Uh, and uh, and everyone's got to decide which which one they're loyal to. Uh, so uh, you know, Japan, America, the Soviet Union. And then it's laid on a little thick in the final sequence after he kills the guy and we get all that religious imagery. Right. Uh, and we and we start thinking about, uh, and Shinoda talks about this, of uh, uh, the West and Christianity versus, uh, versus a more atheistic, humanistic Soviet Union uh, and where Japan fits in that with its, uh, on the one hand, very wide pantheon religion, but also, religion's not as important on a day like, to day life. Be very as clear here, moralistically. Like, yes, it's like it. It is. It is. I understand he's talking about that. It's just the idea that, like, and I guess Meraki is a as a stand-in for that idea of being like, well, kind of, um, which are apathetic to the entire ar- yeah. arrangement. Well, I guess to a certain extent would make sense. I'm. I'm editorializing a little. I'd say what Shinoda's really saying is that uh, religiosity in Japan exists somewhere between American Western moralistic Christianity and and what the Soviet Union was. And and there's 
I, I there's would, comfort and discomfort one way or another. Right, and I think that makes. I actually don't think his arguments are bad here. I, I didn't listen. Yeah. I didn't watch the bonus feature, but like, right, I don't right. think you're, you're getting them from me. From so, you. so, so bear in mind yeah. that I am interpreting it through it through an Adam lens here. But that being yes. said. I don't think his interpretation is bad there. Like, it actually makes a decent amount of sense. I, w- I would say that, like, it's hard to say because, you know, w- what it is is it's more that, like, it's just so different as yeah. to not be put puttable into the context of either. It, yeah. and, and, and Meraki doesn't come off that way. Meraki is not alien to the world he exists in, not truly. Right, like he right. he is alienated, but he is not alien, right? Um, like the reality you're getting into is that when you talk about um, the Soviet Union versus the you know the quote unquote West, you're getting into two like you know the Soviet Union, their the the form of Christianity practice there is very different, but the sort of like broad themes of Christianity still exist, and you're and you're talking about Soviet oh, yeah. Union dealing with. Uh, a very very religious uh society right you're talking about a very right. uh that's as moralistic as the one that it's sort of you know it's right. um right pitted yes, against right? i think that's 100 percent true whereas yeah. when you talk about japanese religion you're talking about something wildly different that is not really worth putting into that context um yeah it gets it has been done and america especially has spent a lot of time in working to yeah. imbue Japan with the same sort of moralistic perspectives as the United yeah. States, right? I think I think that the interview with Shinoda on on the DVD, I'm not sure when it's from, but it's obviously from decades after this. Right. Uh, and I sort of get the feeling that he is someone who has thought more about religion in the decades since making this movie than he thought about before making this yeah, movie. Yeah, that would make sense. Because uh, one thing about the the religious aspects in the iconography in the final sequence, and this is a thing I think he was thinking about when he made the movie, is uh, comparing the fate of uh, Meraki to the Passion of the Christ, and that he has he has knowingly, willingly sacrificed himself for the good of his people, right. Uh, and that is laying on real thick a religious allegory for for that aspect, because he knows that in in killing this guy he is going back to prison, right? And this is something he is actively choosing to do to make that sacrifice. I think post this movie, maybe Shinoda started thinking more about uh, Christianity and religion uh, and Japanese religion. <laughs> religiosity uh in different ways that he maybe wanted to uh talk about during that interview but that aren't necessarily as aspects of the international relations thing that is purposefully in the movie but i think it's stuff he thought about after yeah i mean because uh, yeah i think the religious yeah like yeah yeah i think you're i want to yeah one because it's not that prominent in the rest of the movie except for that uh, that one last aspect um, and two, because the way Shinoda talks about religion uh, and Japanese religion, uh, even I feel like <laughs> I could give some pushback against. Right. Um, I'm not super familiar with, with, with the Japanese religions, 
Um, but one thing he says is that as, uh, he believes that uh, Japanese religion is ultimately monotheistic. That there, that there really is only one god within Japanese religion, and the emperor is the avatar of that god. Uh, and then there are, you know, thousands of other <laughs> gods in a pantheon, but they are really just aspects of. I mean, one, he, he's making an argument that you that that is certainly makeable and 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 like not like inherently wrong, uh, you know. Yeah. But but bearing in mind that like, it it is still a version of that that is so foreign to. Like I spend, I waste time in class. I waste a lot of time in class talking right. about this, and like, there is there is a there is a huge gap in it. But it's because it's not just about like how many gods there are. There's it's the way you view them, the way you understand their yeah. role in your life, and the way that you understand your obligations to those gods, right? God or gods, right? And those are mm-hmm. despite generations, a generation or two of of America. Pretty heavily, and 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 pre World War Two, mind you, like major restoration and onward, Japan itself trying to pull in Western notions of religion to try to fit in a little bit more with, with sort of the West, quote unquote, um, and then a lot of push from outside forces trying to imbue Japan with more of what of the way that America, Europe view religion, it's still a pretty foreign concept like the way just the way it functions is just you you try to come up with allegories and it always sort of falls apart because it's like uh this doesn't really work in the same way like people don't view it the same way like there's a reason why like the easiest solution to the answer is always like well what you'll find in like textbooks that's very very blase and very not accurate but but uses that it's a religious that like religion yeah on a day-to-day basis plays no major role in anybody's lives, right? They don't concern... But I don't think that's accurate, right? And I think mo- books that dig into the, to it in depth often will plumb the idea that that is not an accurate interpretation of what's happening, but it's the easiest one because on a day-to-day basis, when you just, like, look at it, you're like, well, they're not doing religion at all. Right. Like, and it's, that's not true, but it's also... And that's what makes it so foreign and weird. And I think Shinoda is... You would, if you really wanted to pull off that allegory, you would have to have Murnaki be like a completely alien element that like can't understand, doesn't even understand, or really can't come to terms with either side of that disagreement. Uh, right. You know about these these powers, right? So, you know, yeah, yeah. So, uh, leaving apart the religion. Um, the uh, the international relations aspects. It's a pretty straightforward Cold War metaphor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, th- and that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. And, it works. And the fact that the people who uh, you know Japan as a nation or or the individuals within Japan who who can't pick a side in that international relations argument uh, feel more and more alienated. Um, and you know that alienation. You know we get we get. Meraki is just uh just self destructive um just from a from a life of being uh a gangster right and then Seiko uh has and we don't know anything about her background, but she's well dressed right i mean she's wealthy. So there's we all the know simpli- she's wealthy yeah right there's this implication of of just being a wealthy person with you know, 
upper class ennui. Um, and no, someone who's never had to work for anything, deciding that they need danger in their lives, so they start hanging out at the illegal gambling dens. That's a pretty, that's a common enough trope, right? Right, exactly. She's, um, th- that's not really anything special. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, he falls for her, but it's not necessarily a romantic love, and that relationship is interesting, particularly from 1964. You know, the the fact that it's not overtly romanticized, and the one time that they pretend to be romantically involved in order to avoid a police raid uh, they do not do anything, right? They they think about it for a second, as far as we see, but right. only in body language. Well, and and, and that uh, the, the the movie ends up playing a really fascinating game with the audience, right? Like this sort of, it's not yeah. even will they, won't they? It's more like, more like a kind of like, you think this is going to happen, but this is not going to happen. Like right, and you were you're wrong to think it's going to happen, right? And and you know, um. I would say that the the it's not a bad thing, but I it, you know I found it sad that we don't get really a lot of resolution with the other girl. Uh, not, uh what's her name? Um, oh yeah, the the clock shop girl or something like that. I think. Um, yeah, I've lost track of her name. Uh, but you know we don't we don't, and I don't think it's a bad thing because the movie doesn't need to resolve all all threads or anything like that right. to be successful or anything like that. I I on a personal level disappointing just because you know we we you know we we do get a resolution to a certain extent with her because we know what's going to happen to him and we know that we can guess about what she's going to do but we don't really know Um, right 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 um and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that but like i could have because the movie is focused on the relationship between meraki and seiko we don't we we know that uh the other woman is jealous and 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 re- does seem to care quite a bit about him, but we don't, you know, we just do. I I, I we don't get as much time with her as I would have yeah. liked. I found her story, I found what little of her story we get very compelling and interesting, and we just don't get a lot of it. Yeah. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. The movie is successful. It's what it's it accomplishing. Is. It's fine for it to have threads that hang. It's just like, oh man, I would have liked to know what happens, like a little bit more about her. Yeah. I think it sort of only exists in the film to. Uh, to show us that Meraki is capable of using a woman for sex and then just leaving. Oh well, so I, I and then I, that's not what he does with Seiko. I think it's more than that, though. I think it's yeah. I do. I really do because okay, we the way that Meraki talks to say uh, to her um, again. I think her family name is like Yoshida or something like that. I didn't really pay attention, but like mm-hmm. um. She, the way he talks to her implies that he actually does bear a great deal of affection for her. Okay. The reason I say that is because think. when they first get together, he's not like, he doesn't just like immediately leave. He doesn't, he sits and talks to her. Right. And he n- always talks to her when she comes to talk to him. Right. He never, it's never like this sort of gangster trouble of like kicking her out or like throwing her around or any of that stuff. Right. Like he, I think, that Meraki understands who I think the general vibe we're supposed to get is that Meraki understands who he is and like what his life is and doesn't want to visit that upon this person that he seems I think has known for a very long time right because they went on dates when they were like teenagers right like they talk about yeah and, and he does 
sort of make implications that no, she was very easy or something like that. But at the same time, like he doesn't dismiss her out of hand per se. You know what I mean? That's fair. And he he yeah. implies that like she should she he tells her multiple times you should get married because he's I don't think right. it's because he doesn't want to be with her. I think it's more that he doesn't want her to be with him. Yes. I don't I think it's supposed to tell us that he has a, that he is not a cold the cold-blooded person per se. If, if, especially if you combine that with his with the way he treats Seiko, I think we're supposed to understand that this that his cold-blooded killer thing is at least to some extent an affectation or at least is like the role he plays and not necessarily his whole being, right? Because he doesn't yeah. treat her bad. I mean, he you know, yes, he does go over and like kind of they immediately have sex, but then like he's they stick around and they hang out and they talk and he like wants to beat up her dad. You know, right. like who's right. ruined her life, right? He he's known her long enough to to have compassion for her circumstances, and I do think he legitimately, as far as the movie is concerned, believes she should get married to this nice guy who could take her away from this thing that he wouldn't be able to take her away from, even if he wanted to, right? right? Because he's going to go to jail, right? Or he's going to like, you know, he's not as kind to her as he should be, but I don't think he's supposed to be read as just like a dismissive womanizer about that because we don't see him womanizing right he has this woman that he has this on sort of like pseudo on and off again relationship with and he's got seiko who is not even an actual romantic relationship it's more of an obsession possibly a paternalistic thing in a lot of ways yeah so it's just i think it's supposed to make meraki a you know a more well-rounded character that yeah round him out no matter what right yeah i just think i think it's we have to be careful not like very few of the things that we see him do are supposed to paint him as a stereotypical version of those characters that we know from from other films, right? He's yeah. always supposed to be yeah. a more complex version of that, and therefore more real, right? The idea is he is supposed to be more more real than a lot of those characters are. Yeah. Um, one more aspect of the international relations okay. of this movie um, that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe negative reflects uh, bigotry that certainly actually existed. Oh, the Chinese uh, thing? in Japan and still exists. I yeah. assume is what yo is yo is China. Yes, yeah, yo, yo is, is China. China. Yo is China. I mean, yo is of all the characters in this movie. I I saw it. You see it coming a million miles away. Like yo yeah. is 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 a is of all the characters in this movie is the only one who is truly stereotypical. Right? He's a drug fiend. Yes. He's dangerous. He's out of control. He's violent. Uh, he well, is every Japanese stereotype about like a Chinese person showing up in Japan. Like he really is. He Beyond is dangerous. The relationship he thing. is dangerous and violent. But the drug fiend aspect is just assumptions on uh, Meraki's part. Well, his friend tells him. Uh, yeah. My my point. Yeah. yeah I, guess, I, I understand what you're saying, but like that doesn't change. I know what you mean. But that it doesn't is, change the fact what that I, that is a stereotype in Japan of Chinese yes. people. Like, very What I'm saying is that that aspect of it might be character bigotry, not production bigotry. Oh, yeah. No, I no, no, I know. That, that, but, that may be true. Yeah. But, like, we don't, we don't, the movie doesn't, that may be true. But I, and maybe Shino is trying to be more subtle than he would otherwise be right like you know or that some other yeah. other director would be about it right like he might be trying to be more like well we don't actually know that he uses drugs like Meraki's scared that he does because he's Chinese 
Uh, but we don't. And, and you're right. Uh, either way, though, we don't. You know, in the end, like he kills Seiko as a, as a like I guess a lover's quarrel when it all comes yeah. down to it, um, which very could easily just be a euphemistic thing for that like it was a drug thing and her family's very rich and so can just make it turn into a lover squirrel which reads better or something like that. Uh than yeah. her like get you know you know drying dying of a drug overdose or something would for the family or something. We don't know. We're given a lot of like kind of just like vagueness there, right? Uh and that's on purpose. But either way, like Yo if even if it's only Meraki's perspective on it Yo is a is very 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 much a stereotype of Chinese people in Japan to this day. Yeah, like an ongoing, yeah. and continuous, still present stereotype. Yeah, I. Uh, that is that is the most Ishish- <laughs> Ishihara's politics that this movie I think manages to keep right. from the book. Hopefully, as something it's keeping from the book. Uh, and not something that is being introduced by Shinoda or right. something and, of and, that name. And I think Shinoda it's still bad it, enough that they keep that aspect right. from the I book. I think Shinoda but. might try to be tempering it to a certain extent in the sense that, A, yeah. Meraki, it's Meraki and his friend are the only people who, like, acknowledge that to even maybe be true. But then she says she got drugs, but then she says she got drugs from her doctor friend. So that's kind of an interesting right. little thing that I think maybe Shinoda may have tossed in to be like, hey, hey, she didn't get it from him. Um, you know. Right. It's not... The opium is not the Chinese influence, right? right. And, she's, and she's shooting up because she's a rich, rich girl, right? Exactly. Because... Who can like get a doctor to give her morphine or whatever? Yeah. Um, and the thing about it is, is that like, you know, if you combine that with the fact that like Meraki has an absolutely unhinged dream, right? Like, we come to understand at least to a certain extent, Meraki is unhinged about this stuff. It does not yeah. mean that Seiko did not die of a drug overdose. It just doesn't necessarily mean. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know. What happened? Right, but we also do know that Yo tries to throw knives at him for a while. Um, yes, but then again, Yo may be just trying to get rid of Meraki. You know, either way, Yo is not a positive character to be the representative of China, right? And it's certainly right. and right. is following Chinese, Japanese stereotypes about Chinese people. At least most, some of them, right? Not maybe not every single one, but at least yeah. some of them. Yeah, and China, particularly at the time, being a wild card to this international relations story, uh, he certainly he's represented by stereotypes, but he's still represented as as a force to be reckoned with, I guess. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, Meraki's obsession with uh, Seiko and Yo. Um, that is somewhere between paternalistic and uh, love triangle in a in a not great way. Uh, I mean, emotionally for him, um, uh, gets us into some of the the stunning visuals of this movie. Uh, that dream sequence uh, is just amazing. It is amazing. It is absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It's just films. It reminded me. Uh, a vampire, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot. Um, of, there's a lot of high yeah, contrast of imagery and stuff. Yeah. And I would say it, it fits into the category of uh, here's a film that you would have a million times harder trouble making in color, right? Like it depends yes. on the the contrast of black and white so 
inherently in, in, in almost every scene, right? The way that every scene is composed depends on the idea that we're going to have a lot of high contrast, uh, you know, between the, the shadows and the, and the light. And you, I mean, you can make a movie like this in color, but you would lose what that sort of tells you about the world they're living in. Right. And, and sort of opposing sides and the idea that like, you know, there's a lot of sort of, there isn't a lot of black and white in the film. I mean, there isn't a lot of gray in the film, despite the world being very, very gray, right? Right. Yeah. The uh, the film noirness of this film is is very film noir. <laughs> oh yeah, no. I mean, we even we even we even down to to the occasional voiceover, which is really like right. wowzers. Yeah. the The opening scene of this very reminiscent of Blast of Silence. With uh, you know, not not quite as harsh of a of a voiceover as Blast of Silence is, uh, the narration in Blast of Silence is is so high in the mix, it's like a different thing yeah. happening. Um, but yeah, we get the very very noirish in New York, similar ways. You know, we have the the uh, the Tokyo version of Grand Central Station. Uh, you know, and and him arriving back in the city from from prison, talking about overcrowdedness and and seeing the overcrowdedness. It's you know, it's a, there's a million a million stories in the naked city sort of introduction too. Right. Um. And the you know, it's beautifully, the whole thing's beautifully shot. Um, it really is. I mean, it is. It Mas- is a gorgeous Maseo Kosugi. Film. Yeah, Maseo Kosugi is the cinematographer here, and he worked a lot with Shinoda. Um. But yeah, yeah, absolutely gorgeous film across the board. Um, the uh, the sequences at night outside where Yo is throwing the the uh, scalpels <laughs> at <laughs> at our main character as he as he wanders around the empty red light district. Um, she notices that uh, that was really just serendipity. Uh, the anti prostitution laws had really ramped up in in the town they were filming in. Uh-huh. So they really, there really empty. was just an empty red. There really was an, an as empty as could be red light district, uh, that they just filmed in live at night. Uh, yeah. He talks about how he didn't want to make the movie in Tokyo because to do in Tokyo would require permits, but Tokyo, Tokyo government wasn't really, apt to give out I mean, permits. Tokyo government's famous for uh, that to this day. The Tokyo government is loath yeah. to give out filming permits. You have to know yeah. a lot of people and right. pull a lot of strings to make it happen. And yeah. even then, they're highly restrictive because they, I mean, you know, for whatever reason they decide to do that, but they're they're very restrictive. Like, you, like in my understanding, they've been that way for a long time. Like, nothing, yeah. you, you know, you can't paint the city in a bad light and all that kind of stuff, right? So films right, are almost right, always made in, in other places. Yeah, Shinoda talks about how it wasn't, uh, how even today it's not like L.A. where they'll just shut down the highway no, for you so no, you no, can no, no, film. No, 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 yeah, like, yeah. like I said, the, the the Tokyo government as a whole is loath to do anything like that. They are very, very, very restrictive uh, to the point where, like, yeah. even Japanese directors, like you know Shinoda or other directors, will apt to opt to just not do it in Tokyo. It's like, oh, we just we'll just do it somewhere else. Yeah. So they filmed it, I think, in Yokohama. Yeah, if I remember yeah. correctly. Um, well, and Yokohama works better as a sort of yakuza town. Yokohama makes sense anyway. Yeah. So it's yeah, right. 
yeah uh yeah and he also uh he also says that even even if getting permits in tokyo was an option uh it was something directors like him weren't weren't chomping at the bit to do because government approval comes with government oversight well was I, exactly uh, like yeah that that's where i was kind of going with that is that like even if you yeah. manage to get tokyo government approval to like make your film they're going to want script oversight and all kinds of other stuff that you don't want to necessarily give them on your on your film about modern society being a cage and gambling and right you know yeah. death maybe from like drug wow. addiction or something Right, right. A lot of a lot of negative aspects that the Japanese government would not. Uh, yeah, and the Tokyo want government to, doesn't want, want to, especially to the Tokyo government, just doesn't want to associate it with them, right? So. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it's just, I, another Shinoda Shinoda has such a mind for movies. Uh, I really think, and and his, I really, I wish I knew what year this interview was from, uh, because it's really interesting the comparisons he makes sometimes um, when he's talking and when he's talking about casting the movie, uh, uh, Meraki is played by Ryu Ikebe and Ikebe um, was a guy. He's got a really interesting, he plays toughs and policemen throughout his career. Right. Uh, but he's in like he, <laughs> He's in such a wide variety of movies. Like he's in Ozu's Early Summer. Yeah. And he's yeah. also in Battle in Outer Space. <laughs> I mean, he's a he's a, a, yeah. a Japanese working actor, so right, right, era, right. Yeah. He's got eight um, billion roles and they're all whatever. He but his big He'd been real big in the fifties and he was real big after this, but he had sort of dropped off. And uh Shinoda compares him to Mickey Rourke. Okay. As, uh, which I think is a really interesting. It it makes me wonder if uh, if the interview was done around the time of the wrestler uh, coming out. If it is that late, uh, but like I said, I have no idea like what year this interview was done. Right. Uh, but it's yeah. Uh, so he talks. Uh, yeah, he talks a little bit about the casting, and. As that is a guy who, oh, it's from 2010. There we go. It is actually labeled what year that interview is from. So, yeah, the the Mickey Rourke, uh, the Mickey Rourke comparison is probably pretty, uh, pretty timely, right? Because um, the wrestler came out in 2008. Um. So anyway, but just as a guy who who known for playing toughs and had fallen out of favor, uh, and uh. Yeah. And was somebody who, like, I think it was Toho was actively telling directors not to cast Akibe in anything okay. at that moment for for whatever reason. So, you know, he was in he was in a real career downturn. And Shinoda basically rescued him from that. Uh, and then um, Mariko Kaga, who plays Seiko had been in another Shinoda film already. Uh, but but the way he, t- the way he talks about how he found her is so it's not great. Uh, okay. 
he says uh, it's it's not like a knife in the water story. Thankfully, oh, well, I'm, um, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, and while it does seem like she was, you know, she she's obviously very young, and he's thirty. I think he's in his mid thirties when he makes this, um, and she's like nineteen in this movie. Uh, but he describes her as having been on a variety show as decoration. Accurate, uh, probably, which, but yeah. Which is probably 100% accurate and not even a, a reflection poorly on him. He's just accurately describing her function on the show that he saw her a, on. A function that still um, very, very much exists on Japanese TV. Let's be very, very clear here. Like, right. That's still how right. this, this this works. Like, there are a lot of people... there. Are, May it may have gotten more gender diverse in the sense that now there are both men and women who are there for decoration, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know her her inclusion in in this film and some of his early other early work gives her a pretty pretty long film career and and particularly a television soap opera career, I think. But proves she can act. Um, so she is no longer just just set dressing when she is on television. I don't know. Just the way that interview is so great. Shinoda, Shinoda, he's a really smart director, and and just the way he talks about everything is is really fun and and interesting. Yeah, he, I mean, he's an interesting um, person to listen to, right? So, yeah. Um, even even if I don't think his uh, his interpretations are always correct. His interpretation of religion in 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 the U.S. or religion in Japan is probably one hundred percent true, but. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. The other thing I mentioned earlier uh, that uh, the f- fight with the screenwriter was was seen as uh, an excuse by Sh- <laughs> Shochiku to shelve the film for a little bit. Uh, apparently, also they had been releasing like fairly family friendly films up to this point, right? That's because so, I so kind they of also some stuff like that too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they also viewed, according according to Shinoda, they also viewed the movie as immoral. But again, he has no idea why they changed. He seems to not know why, why they eventually released it. So, and it wasn't it wasn't that long of a delay, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Shinoda says that he uh, he had a strong influence in making this film from. Baudelaire's Fleur du Mal, uh, the 19th century collection of French poetry about death, mostly. <laughs> uh, not mostly about death. Uh, the poem, this is from Wikipedia. I've never read Fleur du Mal. Um, it translates to uh, uh, flowers of evil, essentially. <laughs> um, uh, bad flowers. Uh but the poems deal with themes of decadence and eroticism, particularly focusing on suffering and its relationship to original sin, disgust toward evil and oneself, obsession with death, and aspiration toward an ideal world. Uh, he might miss that last part as far as influence from the poetry, <laughs> assuming that it is actually... It's also Wikipedia, unsighted, right. summarizing a collection of Wikipedia. <laughs> We've had plenty of times perfectly where we disagree. A- what you mean is perfectly uh, accurate. What you're describing is perfectly accurate. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure Wikipedia is often perfectly accurate, but uh, their literary criticism leaves something to be uh, yes, that uh, is, that wanted. Yes, that's very, very true. Uh, 
I mean, quite, most of quite the often. What, most of what criticism shows up on Wikipedia is pretty iffy. <laughs> Let's be clear. Yeah. Here. yeah. Uh, but yeah, he says uh, he says when he finished shooting the film, this, uh, this I'm drawing from the uh, Chuck Stevens essay. Uh, he says when he finished uh, shooting the film, he realized that his youth was over. Um, and again, he was in his mid thirties at that point, so maybe maybe a little late on that uh, on that realization. But uh, yeah, some people whatever. take a while to get there. It's true. When did you realize your youth was over? When I was. 18 years old. Oh, that's very sad. <laughs> I joke. But also, yeah, it was it was 9-11. Everyone's youth ended pretty yeah, quick. Yeah, we, we were all 16 when our youth ended, uh, pretty much, for at least for a generation. Yeah. Uh, you know, Shinoda is a person who maybe, like, I mean, we, we encounter this with a lot of um, Japanese directors, though, is this sort of like, of this era, is this sort of like, oh, kind of a delayed, sort of a delayed maturity, a kind of like a lack of, Acknowledgement. It takes them a while to get. It seems like it's maybe a generational thing. A while to get over the idea that, like, oh, I'm not a teenager. You know, yeah. it, it does seem to be a thing for them. So, well, I mean, given new wave directors across the board. Yeah, uh, I, you're right. All, no, that I I, I say almost directors, almost all people in I their late twenties to mid thirties making movies about eighteen year olds. Uh, Often as an excuse to hang out with 18-year-olds. Yes, so, very much so, um, yes. Uh, yeah. So there's that aspect of it, too. You know, art, artists always skew youthful, I guess, or at least view themselves as youthful right. so often. Um, sometimes to their own detriment. Uh, but, yeah. It's... Uh, yeah, it's just it's such a great movie. Uh musically, uh stylistically, visually, uh yeah, everything everything works so well together in Pale Flower that I'm yeah, it's one of it's it makes me sad that this is the last Shinoda film we'll watch. Uh, yeah, me too. While I've enjoyed every Shinoda film we watched. Uh no more in the collection. Uh but yeah, at least we got three out of it, and you know, there's there's the aspect that I don't need more Japanese cinema from the Criterion Collection either. Really, I mean, I but, I don't um, mind it, but I also feel like, well, yeah. maybe like you know, I I sent me a conversation with my mother about the fact that like, in, you know, slowly but surely been giving us a more diverse like um, film perspective. Right. right? It takes a long t- it's taking a long time, but is. It is slowly happening as we kind of continue to go through the collection, right? So, I, 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 I will see. I think there's probably a, a nearly infinite supply of like pretty great Japanese films we haven't watched yet, but I also like watching a variety of things. So, yeah, right, right, yeah, and this was really great. Um, uh, yeah, no, there's just. I'm still struck by the opening and the closing and just how quintessentially New York film noir both of uh, both those things successfully feel like in a Japanese film. No, uh, I, I agree. Yeah, it, there's definitely, just, you can read a lot of influence in it and you wonder, you know, how much did that influence sort of filter back and some of that stuff, right? Because, yeah, yeah. this this movie feels very... Um, 
Yeah, it does. It it feels. We, we talk sometimes about whether directors are Western or not, right? Sometimes when we in the past about like yeah. Japanese filmmakers and like this, it feels it's dealing with a very a very Japanese group of people, but it is very much in yeah. line with a lot of the sort of New York sort of New York takes on the on the sort of sort of I I guess because I actually what I'm thinking about more is the French New Wave sort of interpretation of. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I it, think that makes sense too. Where they're like, where they watched gangster movies and then made sort of their own versions of it that aren't quite what they w- watched, but are yeah. kind of similar and stuff. Yeah, and Shinoda's working concurrently with with those films coming out in right. France, right? Right, exactly. In so it, it really would make sense that like that would be if he's enjoying those and it would be things that he's keying in on, right? Yeah, and you know, not even necessarily that he's borrowing from Truffaut so much as him and Truffaut are having similar, similar ideas, thoughts. right? Similar right. thoughts. And coming from a different perspective, right? Because their their perspectives are different. Like Truffaut films, the feel is similar in some ways, but like the perspective on those people is very different, right? Because Truffaut's right. mostly still interested in that character archetype as a character archetype in and of itself. Whereas uh, and he does expand on that, but he's still, you know, ma- very much making that character. Whereas somebody like, you know, is like, making rearranging that character in pretty fascinating ways right like yeah and and really toying with it and i think that has a lot to do with like personal perspective and like context right like what the environment they're operating in is and like what their view of you know because like that you know they're like live their lives are going to produce very different perspectives on that like american movie stereotype right? right Yeah, and even as Godard starts more deconstruction into the Aziz ideas with something like Pierre Lafau, uh, it's still it's different to what we're doing here. Right. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think and, so. Yeah. And there's certainly room in the world for both. Uh, and I enjoyed Pierre Lafau uh, just as much as I enjoy Pale Flower, maybe, um, but enjoy in in different ways. Right. Certainly. But yeah, fantastic movie. So happy to have watched it. Um, I am told, and I you probably don't have this in front of you directly, uh, but I believe I read in the essay that the direct uh, English translation of the title of this movie would be something more like uh, uh, Dying Flower than necessarily uh, Pale Flower. To really, to really key in on that pallidness in a way. Uh, I have to look. Which, you know, I think, I think I joked about this last week at the end of the episode, but uh, but Failflower really makes it sound more like an Ozu film than it does. Anything. It does. It does. Yeah. I I it would have I think it would be like I have to I have to look this up. I think it would be sickly. Sickly, <laughs> like, yeah, sickly or or dying. I think is what the essay said. Something like that. So, I can find but it yeah, very in any case, <laughs> in any case, reading pale flower, you can think of just a flower that is pale in color. Yeah. Okay. So they, the they have like translation oh, yeah, no, that is more that something. Made, sorry, that is, I misread that. Yeah. That that would be like parched, yeah. pale, like drying. Like yeah. What would happen? But when applied to a flower, would mean like that is a dying flower, right? Because a a dry yes. or parched flower is a dying flower. Right. Right. Yeah. So not just not just. Uh, the evocativeness of the title in English 
maybe does not exactly lend it. Uh, no, lend I mean to you, yeah, you the same evocativeness as, as in Japan and Japanese, right? I think that was a probably a compromise made because like parched flour or like dried out flour yeah. is not a very uh, evocative right. title. And pale and pale is not wrong. It no, just, yeah, just is not, not the predominant interpretation first first interpretation of that word in that context when you get it so but yeah yeah fantastic movie so happy to have watched it we're gonna watch a fantastic movie next week too uh really excited uh we've actually already recorded this episode we had uh adam speakerman on as a guest he's been on uh, a few times we're watching the great dictator charlie chaplin's film from uh from 1940 and yeah, had a really fun conversation with Adam. Can't wait to share it with y'all. Uh, very excited to get that out there. Uh, so yeah, this week we've been talking about Pale Flower from 1964, directed by Masahiro Shinoda. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm as always the Adam Glass. With me as always, John Patrick Oyatari Dory. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. been lost in criterion hosted by me adam glass find me on twitter at the adam glass my co-host is john patrick Ovatari dorgan you can find him on twitter at j patrick dorgan big thanks to jonathan hape for our theme song check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service also thanks to all our patreon supporters itunes reviewers and redbubble customers and hey thank you for listening